Super Bowl 55 is this weekend, and a game this big deserves a big prize. And DraftKings, the official daily fantasy sports partner of Super Bowl 55, has up to $55 million in total prizes up for grabs with their Super Bowl prediction pool. All you have to do to get your share of this huge prize is enter DraftKings' free Super Bowl prediction challenge. Once you submit your picks, you're going to instantly get up to $25,000. And when the clock hits zero and the dust settles, if you have the most predictions correct, you could win the top prize of $1 million. Folks, that's life-changing money. And here's all you have to do. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code THPN to enter the free $55 million Super Bowl prediction challenge. Everyone gets an instant prize up to $25,000 just for playing. So use the promo code THPN now and enter the free $55 million Super Bowl challenge only at DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of Super Bowl 55. Terms, conditions, and eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Presented by the Hockey Podcast Network, this is Getting Bullied. I'm your host, Mark Giannone, and this is our first ever segment slash episode called Getting Bullied Remembers the Spectrum. As we're going back in time today, folks, all the way back to May 19th, 1974, the night the Flyers won their first Stanley Cup. We have a guest on tap who will be with us very shortly. But before we get into that, let's get into some business. We're back with the Hockey Podcast Network, which means it's coming to you. Getting bullied, that is. It's coming to you twice a week. You're going to get your current Flyers coverage on your Monday episode. And the Thursday episode will be this. It'll be Getting Bullied Remembers the Spectrum, where we're going to be talking about all the greatest games ever in Flyers history. And I thought, what better to do for the first one than to go back to when the Flyers first became champions. So you can get this episode and every other episode of Getting Bullied anywhere you get your podcast through the Hockey Podcast Network. Just You could type in the Hockey Podcast Network and it'll bring up a list of all the great shows covering all 31 NHL teams. Or you could just type in Getting Bullied wherever you get your podcast and it'll pull us right up. So you can follow me on Twitter at MarkFlagman2ends. You can follow this show at underscore Getting Bullied. And you're going to follow the Hockey Podcast Network at HockeyPodNet. So today's the day. I've been trying to build this up as much as I can on Twitter, trying to get people hyped. I'm trying. What I'm trying to do here with this concept is educate the younger fan that maybe doesn't know too much about the big games in Flyers history. Maybe you've heard of them, uh, you know, but maybe you've never seen them. Maybe you've never heard the stories from other you know other friends from your parents and things like that or maybe you're old enough to have lived these games and you just want to relive it and you want to hear a story or two that maybe you've never heard before so that's what getting bullied remembers the spectrum is going to do and there's really what in my mind I wrote down a bunch of games that I wanted to cover at some point and nothing made more sense than than to go back to the first Stanley Cup and I have with me today, and it's such an honor, such a pleasure to have the very first guest be from the 1974 Stanley Cup winning team. And that is Bob the Hound Kelly, a true legend in Philadelphia sports. Bob can't tell you how excited I am to do this and how appreciative I am 
of you to come on and uh, be the first guest on Getting Bullied Remembers the Spectrum. How are you, Bob? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me on today, buddy. Well, thanks for doing it. I've always wanted to know because a lot of the players from the 70s have kind of not bizarre nicknames, but there was a lot more nicknames back then. So how did you become the hound in your playing career? Uh, when uh, first day of training camp, I ran over Joel Watson and he stood up, he yelled at, he yelled at Keith Allen, the GM and says, I don't know where that guy's come from, but he said, you know, we, you need to, you need to sign him up right away. So uh, I started playing and they were calling me mad dog for the first year. And so it was, it was mad dog, not the hound out there. And I said, you know what, it looks like I'm sticking around here for a little bit. You know, we're out in the community doing stuff for the kids we need to change the name because Mad Dog sounds like I need a distemper shot. So, anyways, we changed, they changed it from that that to Hound. So that was a short-lived Mad Dog. No, I, the Hound sounds a lot better, a lot more short and sweet. <laughs> so, the, so the uh, the basis of what we're doing here is uh, I'm trying to teach younger fans and fans that maybe don't know as much, kind of a little backstory on the biggest games in Flyers history, and obviously the first one, which made most sense to do, was the '74 Cup win which I know because of an injury, and we'll get to this in a little bit, an injury you face in the Ranger series. You weren't able to play in the cup finals that year, but you were still there. You were still, you know, hanging around the guys and, you know, you're a fixture around here. So you make more sense than anyone to, uh, to interview for this first episode. <laughs> so I went back and 72, 73, you guys finished second in the division, ended up losing in the semifinals, uh, in five games to Montreal. Montreal ended up winning the, the the Stanley Cup that year. So I guess my first question is going into 73-74, you know that there's kind of two really good superpowers in the league at the time. It's it's the Canadians and, and the Bruins. So going into 73-74, are you guys really just focused on yourselves, getting yourselves better, or are you trying to catch up with those two teams to get on their level? I think there's a combination of everything. Obviously, when you when you when you lose in five games, uh, you know you have some problems in there. And and again, appreciate you doing your homework on me because there's some things that have kind of escaped. But I think we have reacquired Bernie Perron. He was he was the missing piece for us. And uh, I, I think what you need is you, you know Keith Allen was a really shrewd general manager, and he was able to put pieces in there that we needed. Um, and it was bittersweet but it starts in goal and works your way out we had really good defensemen but you know we got a little younger we got a little tougher but you know trying to catch the Montreal Canadiens I mean those guys could fly out there on the ice so yeah. it was a matter of a matter of both things coming together and nobody likes to lose like we we're possessed and we're all possessed because uh, you know Clarkie was our leader and uh, he, he has a work ethic second to none and uh, you know you just want to be the best you could be you know with Fred Shiro in there innovative with all his techniques and stuff so we just got better and better. So you, to go into 73-74 you guys started the season uh, four and three and the three losses were actually consecutive they were that was your longest losing streak of the, of the whole season. Um, Kind of towards, I think, it, I think I saw it was uh, January into February. You went on 11 game point streak, 9-0 and 2. Ended up finishing that season 50-16 and 12. At what point do you think in that season, um, did you guys really think that this was, that you guys had a legitimate shot at, I mean, this, obviously while everything's going on, you know that you're one of the better teams in the league, you're racking up the wins, but in your minds, 
when did you really think that, you know, you had a legitimate shot to go all the way that year? You know, I think we, we approached everything um, since the year I got there. Like I said, we were missing a lot of talented pieces there, but you know, we never once ever stepped on the ice saying, you know, we can't beat these guys. We can't win. I mean, that was never in our DNA and uh, we were like kind of possessed, you know, all the way down and it was nothing but encouragement for everybody. We, the guys that they brought in were all quality people and they all had the same mind frame. And if, you know, if you had to get out of line a little bit at nighttime, you party too much or something like that, you quickly brought back into line. Um, and again, the whole game has changed. The people have all changed, but our, our mindset was always, we're going to win and we'll win with whatever we've got. So if it takes good goaltending one night, if it takes goals, um, I know one time I'll give you a quick story there. We're going to Boston, the NBC game, game of the week, two o'clock in the afternoon or something like that. Huge, huge game. Freddie Sherrill, he, he sent everybody into a frenzy because he says, Bobby Taylor's starting. Well, Christ chief hadn't played in 30 games for crying out loud. And they're going, Freddie, why, why is Bobby Taylor starting game? You know, it's a huge NBC game. He says, well, it's his turn. So I guess every 30 <laughs> games was his turn. <laughs> yeah. I, in a little bit, I, I went and looked up, uh, Bernie Perron's stats from that year and his games played were just off the chart. I mean, he had 73 games played, which nowadays is unheard of. If a guy does that, you know, you probably have the, the union knocking on the team's door for, for running into the ground like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I went you ahead know, Bern- and looked at, Oh, uh, what'd you say? I, I said, I had something there. you know, like with Bernie, he's, he was a, the guy that, you know, the game is so different today. Like his, his pads were all leather. They absorb water. Our skates were all leather. They absorb water Mm -hmm. and the athleticism you, you have to appreciate. If you look at the width of Bernie's pads and all that, they're not comparable to what the guys wear today, the mass of stuff they have. And everybody's in a flop. Everybody's in a butterfly that pucks are going over your shoulder all the time in different places. And he was a stand-up goaltender, but you watch some of those, the plays that he made, you know, the rebounding and control and, and talking to everybody out there and his athleticism was off the charts and with equipment that we had. So that made the net even bigger with smaller goalie equipment. Right. So I went and looked back at your stats from that year and I'm not really sure uh, if you remember what you did as far as goals, <laughs> uh, assistant points. It was actually, from what I saw, it was actually uh, your worst statistical season. The year you first won the Stanley cup, you, uh, I think you had four goals, 10 assists for obviously 14 points. Was it injuries that year? Because every, every other year you had double digit goals and everything like that. Was it an injury season or was it just everyone else was playing so good that you were able to take a step back and be more of a role player with the team? How was my penalty minutes? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think you were, you were over a hundred. I know that. Oh uh, yeah. That wasn't my 238 one year. I don't believe it was. I think Schultz was was up there. He was up in the two hundreds. Might have he actually might have been in the threes. He was yeah. He was pretty uh pretty pretty much an anomaly that one. So do do you think it was? Do you think it was because everyone else on the team was so good, or were you just just a down year overall for you? I think it was probably a down year. Um, you said that was my third year here, right? Yeah, or fourth year. Third or fourth? Yeah. Yeah, so they said that, you know, the sophomore jinx hit you three years later, that's all. So the guys used to bust on you. But, you know, again, you're, you're playing a role. I mean, I went from playing on Clarkie's line uh, with Lou Morrison when I first got here, and then when Billy Barber came in, you know, Billy stepped in, you know, you, you dropped down on the line there a little bit, but Billy's 
a tremendous talent. And, uh, you know, I think the acquisition of Reggie Leach a little bit later, because uh, Clarkie and Reggie had played together, really cemented that lineup there. So, uh, you know, again, we, we never really cared who scored. So if I wasn't scoring, hopefully I was contributing in other areas out there. So, I mean, my work habits never changed, but I guess the production went down. So, um, you know, we just didn't really care who scored goals. We just wanted to win. So as long as the puck's going in the net, right? Correct. We all know at this point, you know, really the two main guys on that team, Bob Clark and Bernie Perrant. Uh, Clarkie had 35 goals, 52 assists, uh, 87 points, led the team in all categories. I already said Bernie Perrant, 73 games played. He was 47, 13, and 12, 12 shutouts that year. So we know what these guys produced on the ice for you guys. You know, they're bo- obviously both the two leaders, Clarky, the big one with the captaincy. What did they mean for the locker room behind the scenes when things, you know, if you're playing a game where things don't really seem they're going that that well, or if there's a stretch of games where you may be winning, but it's not really in the fashion you want it to be. How are these guys off the ice in the locker room at practice to center everybody and refocus the team at that time? We were pretty good. We had great leadership in there. We had Eddie Van Imp, Barry Ashby. Um, we had uh, a couple couple of the other guys up in the forwards there, like Gary Dornhofer was there. Uh, we had good leadership up and down the lineup, and it was to work hard. Uh, Dorney really pushed Rick McClish um, to be the best that he could be at all the time, so he was good for having. Ross Lonsbury was, was a steady guy there, and, uh, you know, he, we, we never got, we never got upset or, or, or out of whack in the locker room because, you know, Freddie Shiro had, had a way of coming in and just talking, calming everybody. And everybody had a role. Everybody knew what, what their, what their job was. Everybody knew that they had to produce. And, uh, you know, if you're not, somebody's waiting to take, take your spot out there, but, uh, we were well coached. We had good plans by Freddie. Um, so the rest of all you do is go out and have fun. And that's, that's what it's all about is having fun. You know, Freddie used to think that we were, you know, working as, as tradespeople because we'd be on the ice at 8.30 in the morning in, in Philadelphia. You know, that was our practice time. And then you got the rest of the day because, you know, most of the guys weren't married, didn't have kids. So it's like, okay, what do we do now? So, you know, again, off the ice was a lot different than, than what the guys do today and how you're scrutinized and that. Um, so there's so many different changes in there. But I think we just had a calm demeanor in there. We all had the same goal. There was no me, 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 I. And, you know, the guys who were stars, they're always humble and said, oh, no, you know, this guy did more. He did he had dug harder in the corners and stuff like that. So it was never it was never about an individual. It was always about the whole team. Right. How how difficult was it at times to play for Fred Shiro? Because we know everyone said over the years how diff- not difficult, but how different his style was as a coach. Do you think that his style would work in today's game and how long did it take you maybe you specifically as a player to kind of warm up to how he was and, and, you know, just realize that that's who he is and that if you listen to him, good things are going to happen. You know, it's hard to say the, the X's and O's have come a long way since the old days, but you know, a a tribute to Fred Sherrill, he used to travel to Russia in the off season and go and watch, you know, how they played. I mean, he was friendly with some of those guys. Gene Hart used to go over there and watch him. Um, so Freddie, you had to believe in Freddie and, and uh, that first Stanley Cup against the Boston Bruins, uh, Freddie walked in and he goes, here's the strategy. And we're all going, oh, yeah, what's the strategy from usually bashing and brawling and stuff like that? He says, we're going to dump the puck in the corner and give it to Bobby Orr. I said, well, like, kind of like, why would you want to do that? That's the last guy you want to give to him. And he says, no. 
he says, you're going to, cause we were a dump and chase team. And he said, no, you're going to dump it in or you're going to make him turn around, go back and get it all the time. I want you to hit him, bump him. I don't want you doing dirty stuff, no sticks, no nothing to him. Just bump him, make him skate around you cause as much commotion as you can for him. So he has to go around you. And he said, he'll start to tire. And it's a lot easier skating without the puck than it is skating with the puck, making plays and that. And uh, by the third game, uh, Orstar just slowed down a little bit. I'm not saying that was a total thing that made it, but I mean, he made that team tick. He made it cook. So then, uh, you know, the second, the second cup was kind of the same way. I mean, he gave us a plan. We always had a plan. We always knew what we were supposed to do. And uh, Freddie had all those goofy things he used to put on the board that we, you know, we do understand what they meant, but um, you know, it was just different ways of motivating stuff. I, I don't know about the kids psyche today. Um, you know, huge amount of kids coming out of college. Wonderful. They're used to playing a 37 game schedule. They're used to partying on the weekends, doing different stuff. You know, that's, that's not the case today. I mean, when you sign on and you come in here as a college kid, um, you know, you're, you're going the whole duration. Like it, every day you're going, you're not used to that. You're used to 37 games. It's a grind. And, uh, you know, you got to physically be ready all the time. You got to improve your weaknesses. You got to work on things. You got to eat properly. You have to have zero fat. They like those guys around six, one, six, two, you know, 200 pounds. Uh, Hayes is a perfect example, big, strong kid. Um, it's just a whole different mentality. I mean, there was no air conditioning in the buildings when we played. So, you know, you go home for the summer, you fatten up a little bit and then you start running, you know, two or three weeks before you're coming to camp. And, you know, camp used to be two and a half weeks. Now the guys go one day and they're right, right on the ice playing exhibition games. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's a total different psyche. Um, you know, more and more people around there. We didn't have, we didn't have any luxuries, but that's the way the game was played. I mean, you know, we, we came in there, there's only 12 teams when Philadelphia came in. So the original six guys, such a, such an honor to remember them and play against those guys. And, uh, you know, from Toronto, from Montreal, you walk in those mega shrines, you know, the old Chicago stadium, you're like a gladiator coming out of the basement. The, the, you know, the organs playing like crazy. You're out there with Bobby Hall, Makita. Um, you know, it's, it's just bizarre. It was just, just wild. So I don't know if those buildings still hold that kind of character because everything is brand new. Everything's updated. Um, you know, the actual swing in our, in our population right now, the ones coming for the games are probably the 40 year olds. Like there's not many people really left around that come to the games. Uh, they'd be up in their seventies, you know, same way to come to come to the game. So we're really skewing the game towards younger kids. And, you know, you're coming in at 18, 19, 20 years old. And back, back in those days, that, that was rare. If you could make it as a 20 year old, 19 year old kid. Right. Dave Schultz. This, this is funny to me. Uh, Dave Schultz in, in this season had 20 goals in the regular season, two hat tricks, and then 348 penalty minutes. And then <laughs> conversely in the playoffs, he had two goals and four assists and then 139 penalty minutes. I think that Dave Schultz is kind of like the ultimate, you know, role player guy all time. You know, he, he obviously had a goal scoring touch, but we all I think a lot of the fans know him more for, you know, his rough, his rough style of play and the high penalty minutes. What did Dave Schultz do for the guys like Clark McLeish and stuff like that as far as opening the ice and how ice and how important was he to just making the whole thing work properly? You know, he had a he was down playing for the Richmond Robins. We used to bust them all the time, rocking little Robin on your on your chest for your, for your logo. <laughs> we used to drive him nuts. But, uh, you know we all certain guys came really close to Davey and, and, and Davey would do anything to win, but it, he found out that, you know, you get more attention because the flyers, the flyers weren't a rough team. I mean, we had the small French guys, Andre Lacroix, Jean-Guy Gendron. Uh, we had some guys who could skate, but 
never fought much and I mean we were getting pushed around so that was when uh, Keith Allen decided to change that you know the, the makeup of the team and that's when in come Don Seleski and in come you know Schultze and you know I was there and and uh you know kind of made the team a lot tougher but but Davey could score like he used to talk about his great scoring ability down there in junior but I said well this this is pro you got to do this up here so if you give him the opportunity he can score and, and he stayed after worked on his skating worked on his shooting worked on everything so he, he put the time and effort in to become a better player and uh, he can give the guys a lot of breathing room uh, when Schultz is on the ice you, you had to be aware of him because he's coming to get you he do, wouldn't care and uh, he would do anything for the team as well too and just a tremendous person on and off the ice um do anything for you and you know he, he brought both he could he could score goals in key moments i mean freddie wasn't afraid to put you out in a key situation and which turned out to be in boston you know with davy out there mm-hmm. uh when clarky scored so uh you know you can play him there without fear that he's going to screw up but he was right. just a great guy good tough kid yeah all right so we we take it to the playoffs now and you guys sweep atlanta in four in the first round. Then you win in seven against the Rangers. And uh, for those who don't know, that this is the series that you end up getting injured in in the playoffs. You miss the finals. Uh, so kind of what happened? What game was it that you ended up getting injured and, and what happened on the ice? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was in uh, game six. I uh, might have made it to seven. Not quite sure. We didn't wear helmets back in those days. So I get a little foggy here after all these years. <laughs> but uh I've been having a running feud out there with Ron Harris, really strong, good, good defenseman out there for the Rangers. And uh, Gary Dornhofer had gone down too. He was out, he had gone down. He was a right winger. So Freddie slotted me over there to play on, on, in his spot there. And I come down the boards and I just got locked up with a couple of guys and I had absolutely nowhere, where to get away. I couldn't stop. I couldn't do nothing. And Ron Harris came across and just drilled me and it ripped the, uh, the ligaments inside my, my left knee. So uh, I had to sit out and do rehab and, Today, like you'd be out with medical stuff or, you know, we were in there and they were using tape to replace my muscles and all that, but I just couldn't go. So I didn't play in the final game against the Rangers and, uh, you know, the Boston series, unfortunately, uh, I missed. And because I had this walking cast on and, and all the other stuff with my leg, I couldn't even fly on the airplane to uh, to go to Boston with the guys. There would have been no place for me to sit in the Boston Garden. Wow. So uh, I actually had to miss the first two games and then uh, picked up from there. I was still skating and working out back here in Philly, but you know, it's not the same. If, if you're not in there bleeding and, and, and feeling the pain and, and, and the adversity and what's going through everybody's head in that locker room, you don't feel part of it, even though you've been part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still there. The guys are great for, for keeping you looped in and everything, but you know, you, you have to be there. You, if you don't go the full distance you're not bleeding, you're not, you're not hurting and stuff like that. It just doesn't feel the same. That's why the second, the second uh, cup was a lot sweeter for me. Right. So, I mean, you're at the time you're 23, 24 years old and, you know, you're on this rocket ship ride. You're on probably the best team in the league at the time. And you guys have a real shot at winning the Stanley Cup. So when the when the injury happens, you know, what kind of goes through your head, you know, I guess immediately after when you get the news that you're not going to be able to play for a while. And does anyone, you know, Fred Shiro or anyone kind of come in and settle you down, one of the older guys, and kind of talk you through that, you know, this is just part of the game and you'll be back? No, nah, we had a supply of uh, of older guys in there that played, and they're kind of like your focus in there. But, you know, 
you, you've done what you could do for the team while you're healthy. But like you said, if, if you lose a shoulder, you can't shoot. You know, if you lose a leg, it's hard to skate. Right. So you, you really need all four extremities uh, working to be able to play. And especially, especially back then, too, we didn't have the kind of protection that the guys play with Tate. Like, you know, they got like a pseudo armor when you take the jersey off front, you know, front, back right. to take shots in the back. I mean, we used to have, you know, just cut out cups on our shoulder. There was nothing in here. You know, we, we did everything we could do. You know, the guys used to cut the inside of their shin guards out just to lighten the load for you because it said everything absorbed water. So we really didn't have all that much protection in there back in those days. But, you know, everybody was good. I mean, you feel included, but you have to be out there. You have to contribute to make yourself really feel good. So, uh, so 73-74 against Boston in the regular season. You go 1-3-1. and one. And we've all, uh, maybe not we've all, but you guys have, you guys struggled against Boston early on in, in the Flyers franchise. Uh, just, I mean, Boston was Boston, it, especially this year. Phil Esposito, 68 goals, 77 assists. Uh, Bobby Orr had 32 goals for a defenseman in the 70s. That was almost unheard of. Uh, Ken Hodge, 50 goals. So, you know, th- th- this was a powerhouse team. I was, I actually went back and watched the game last night and they flashed a graphic up on the screen that said the Bruins at that point uh, in 74 now were playing in their third Stanley Cup finals in five years. So this was a legit team. They had some, you know, they had Hall of Famers. It was just a great team. So they won game one, three, two, and then uh, game two happens. Clark scores the goal in overtime. What does that do mentally for a locker room that here's this team that you've had so much trouble against in the past that you're just trying to get to be on the same level, and now you're in a series where you have to be better to be the champion. So Clark scores that goal in game two in overtime and wins it. Series is tied coming home. What What's what's the mood like with the guys, you know, coming home, getting ready for game three, knowing that this team is beatable? Well, you know what? Uh, Boston was a class, the class of the league at that time. I think they had the most points or right behind Montreal or whatever. But they, uh, you know, I said they had the superstars and, pretty well all those guys like McKenzie and like you said, Hodge and uh, Cashman out there. I mean, they, and Sanderson, they had, they had some great, great hockey players that could, could wheel the puck and put it in there. And, you know, we were definitely the underdogs and Boston thought that they were in their heads, you know, they're a lot better and they're going to go through and, and sweep us. But, you know, we had Bernie Perrant and we had, you know, we had guys that could play, but we're just not in the same class level as, as a lot of those guys out there. And you said they had Bobby Orr, which was the key weapon. So, you know, the thought was like, you don't know. Like, so we approached every period, every, every game, like we can win. And uh, obviously Clarkie's goal, you know, that sent it back, that sent everything upside down f- for the Bruins now coming back in our building. Cause one thing we did, you know, the spectrum was our building. You don't win in our building. And that was kind of our, our psyche that we had and we played by. So things can change in a, in a period, things can change in a half a period, things change sometimes in two games, one game depends, but uh, we kind of changed the momentum around there. We had Kate Smith sing out there and, you know, Esposito went out and gave her a bunch of flowers and all that. And when she got done singing and, you know, he's saying to himself, you know, not, not tonight guys, you guys don't win tonight, but you know what, we went out and played some good hockey, great goaltending guys played. And, you know, we were the first expansion team to win the Stanley cup. Yeah. And that's that's huge because it usually, you know, these expansion teams come in and, you know, 10 years in, they're still trying to find their way. So uh, you guys win both in, in Philly when you come home, games three and four. Boston wins game five, and then we come to game six, you know, the clincher. So you're coming back home. And again, uh, was there a shot 
because I know you had the injury. Was there a chance that you could play in either game six or game seven if if you needed to? Well, you know, we're 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 kind of a goofy fun group. So, you know, you always strive to come back, but you have to take you have to take things into consideration. And I had like I said, I've been skating. Bruce Cowick filled in for me, did a good job. He was healthy, he's a good kid. And um if you watch the the game, like you said, the last night, at the very start, if you watch it, you can see my head for like all about three seconds skating around in warm-up. So I warmed up for game six, and, and that was it. I just didn't feel like I could jeopardize the team just for myself to get in there and play. And, and Freddie walked in, and, and his famous speech is, hey, boys, win today, walk together forever. Freddie walked out and he said, hey, guys, if you don't win today, I'm playing in game seven. So the guys went out one for crying out loud. So a <laughs> few laughs in there. But, you know, I, I, you just don't do anything. It's all about the team, not about an individual. Right. And that's that's big because I, I, I think a lot of players nowadays would probably go out there just, you know, things. I, I believe that sports in general back in 70s, 80s were a lot more selfless of a game, whereas now with sponsorships and everything like that and the internet and everyone wants to be a highlight. I feel like nowadays a player would might risk it a little bit more to the, to, at the jeopardy of the team. So kudos to you for just saying, you know, it's better if I don't play and we win than if I play and we lose. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned Kate Smith. You guys were 36, three and one when she sang God bless America to this point. And obviously you'd be 37 after tonight. I've always wanted to know how much was it a coincidence that you got because obviously they would break her out for the big game. So was it just that you guys were a big game team and she just happened to be singing God bless America on those games or did, do you believe she gave you guys some kind of boost out there? Well, Lou Scheinfeld uh, used to sit up there with Keith Allen and, and, and Ed Snyder and that, and uh, things hadn't gone really well for a lot of the games there at home. And that building was electric when it's romping, just like, it's like being in Boston. You know, the, they're sitting right on top of you. So building was pretty electric. And Lou said, we need to change this up a little bit. So he said, Ed, I want to change up the anthem. And uh, so he actually was the first one to bring her in and didn't know really what to expect, but she energized singing it. She had a long legacy of helping out the military and stuff. Um, so it just kind of amplified everybody, you know, in the building and the game. And it really got to be, you know, fun time when we needed, we needed big games. I mean, we didn't use her every game uh, like we do with Lauren Hart here. So they brought her in and, and uh, you know, it was hard to get her off the ice. Sometimes she was saying, it was like, we got to get the game started. You got, you need to leave. You need to leave. And uh, so she was definitely, uh, uh, it was a different tone for, her. you know, you get tired of that same thing all the time, you know, the anthem's going to play, but you know, Back in those days, it was a jumbotron. It all it did was tell you goals and penalties. Uh, you know, now you got the kiss cam game. You got all the different games you play in between every stoppage you play. There's something going on. So we didn't have all that stuff. So the only thing you're doing was just concentrating and, and thinking about the games, thinking about the plays. I should have done something better. I let my man go. I didn't plug a hole that I was supposed to be. I didn't get to an area I should have been at. So um, we were really all about, all about business and all about winning. And we didn't care what building we went into. Uh, we actually played, I think, better on the road than we played at home sometimes because, you know, the, all the fans are booing you. They're throwing stuff at you. You know, they're giving it to Schultz. <laughs> you got to laugh at that. So. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're all about business, but we had fun. It wasn't work. It was fun. Right. All right. So we all know by this point that, you know, and you, you kind of touched on a little bit, the famous quote by Fred Shiro before the game, you know, win today, walk together forever. 
what was the mood like in the locker room? You know, before his speech and after his speech, you know, did, was it tense and then it kind of loosened up after that? Or was it just, you know, another day, you know, another day at the office type of deal? Well, Freddie came out of Freddie came out of uh, Omaha. He came out of the New York Rangers franchise. Um, that's why when he left us, he went back to the Rangers, which is where he came from. So it gave him something to do there. And Freddie always came in and, and, and preached that it that it. You know, he just tries to change the flavor. You, you get tired of saying, oh, okay, guys, here's your lines and this is what you're going to do. So he was always looking to change things up. Um, one game, one game, he walked in with a pail of water, put it down in the middle of the floor, and he said, hey, McClish, get over here. So Ricky gets up, walks over. He says, put your hand in the pail of water. So Ricky puts his hand in the pail of water. Now take it out. Takes his hand out of the pail of water. Freddie said, that's how long it's going to take to replace you if you don't get your ass going. So... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> He has different ways of, of of motivating and all that stuff, but again, we're we're well led. Sorry, my dogs. That's all right. <laughs> we're we're well coached. We're prepared. Mike Nicklaug did a good job, and we had tremendous leadership from the older guys. So it, I couldn't I couldn't come at a better time. And you know, when you grow with a franchise, it's huge too. And you know, we had tremendous leadership with Ed Snyder and Keith Allen. What a dynamic duel they were in, in getting bodies and. Freddie conveying the message in that. So like I said, I have no regrets, no complaints. And I had that when I, I went down to Washington to finish my career. Um, you know, there's a lot of change and different things going on down there compared. So, uh, but it, I had my best years here in Philly. I loved it. Right. All right. So you decide game six, you go out there to skate and realize it's not the best move for the team. So then where, where do you set up? You know, where are you sitting in the stadium? Who are you with? And kind of what what are you feeling at the time when the game is about to start? I was just uh, probably just coming out of the shower then. But uh, I went to the press box with everybody sat right up behind the benches there. So I had a, I had a great view. And, uh, you know, you're just on pins and needles. You just, just want to do stuff. And then it was total chaos. So, uh, you know, once we won the game and they're trying to bring the cup out, nobody knew what to expect. And that went on for days. Nobody knew what to expect, but you know, somebody opened the Zamboni doors. The guy's been getting in the back door, paying five bucks to the guy in the door to let them in. So they could watch part of the game there with the Zamboni. And, you know, that's why there were so many people on the ice and Schultz, he's spazzing. If you're watching, he's trying to move people out of there and Billy Clement uh, try, trying to throw people out of there. It just, you know, everybody's just, you know, such a great mood euphoric. It's the first time, you know, they hadn't had a championship here in years. So right. it was, uh, 1960 with the Phillies at last time they won there, but um, it was just a great time. And, you know, things got settled down afterwards and it was, it was good. That's why the second cup was almost a little bit nicer because it was in Buffalo and uh, we got to enjoy the cup because nobody cared about us in Buffalo. Obviously, you know, we got to fly back with the cup on the airplane. So we had some nice relaxed time by ourselves, a few beers, and then we get off the plane and there's like, you know, a couple hundred thousand people waiting there for us. So um, I said, I, I have no regrets about, one thing about playing the game, getting hurt, playing hurt, just as long as you're part of the team, you're in the locker room is what you need. Do you think if that game was in Boston and not in the spectrum with the fans behind you that Bernie would have been, or that Boston would have went scoreless or was Bernie just that on? Cause even in the, you know, the whole playoffs, he was just, you know, there was regular season Bernie and then there was playoff Bernie and then there was Stanley cup Bernie. So if that game was in Boston, do you think that it's the same one, nothing score or does Boston, you know, kind of get one and make it a little bit more interesting. Uh, you know, they played with 
probably the same kind of passion that we played with. Sometimes it's just a bounce. Sometimes it's a, it's a miscue where, where you're going out there. Uh, Bernie was on, he was on his game. There's no question that, that he wasn't on his game. And, you know, if you've studied any of Bernie's, Bernie's, uh, playtime out there lots of times you'll see him he'll tell the referee hold it hold it and he'll call somebody over right one of the defensemen over something like that mm-hmm. so everybody thinks in the crowd here here's all kinds of strategy going to be going on here and bernie says you know joe i think tonight i'm going to get a pepperoni pizza what about you and joe would just turn around <laughs> shake his head and skate back like <laughs> i mean he he did a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff out there but he was he was in the zone a true professional. And remember he, he came from Boston. We traded him in Toronto and then we get him back. And he came back cause he, he had uh, tutored under uh, Jacques Plante up there. And right. uh, that's Jacques Plante made, you know, really made his, his form and everything the way it should be played and not the way he was playing before. He taught him a lot about the angles and the crease and what to do and what to appear and, you know, how to help, you know, kind of quarterback when you're back there for your defenseman. So uh, Jacques Plant gets a lot of credit for uh, for Bernie stuff, but Bernie was, a, you know, he executed to the nines. Yeah, I didn't know this until last night going back and watching the game, but uh, the, the, the broadcaster said that Bernie would never take his mask off on the ice. He waited till to get off the ice because he didn't want, and this is the reason they gave, but he didn't want his teammates to kind of see his facial expressions, whether he was nervous or if he was, you know, just even keel as far as they were concerned. Bernie was good, and if Bernie was good, the rest of the team was good. So there was definitely a mystique about him, too, that I think that a lot of people aren't really aware of. Listen, Bernie, Bernie can do anything he wanted to do, and he, and he did. And, you know, he, he everybody has their quirks. Like, we were, we had to always go out on the ice in a certain rotation. Like, you always line up behind the same guy going out. You had the same routine inside the locker room, you know, cheering guys on to try to get going and stuff like that. So everybody has their quirks and everything. But, you know, Frenchie was, uh, he was just in a league of his own when it came to goaltending at that point in time. I mean, you know, then along come the Islands, of course, Montreal always had a good, you know, goaltender there and stuff. So, uh, Things change, but no, he was up to the challenge. He, he never had a he never had a down day coming to coming to the ring. So when the clock finally hit zero, one nothing score, the fans are going crazy. I'm sure the spectrum is literally shaking at this point. You know, where are you? Are you down back in the locker room at this point, making your way out on the ice? And more importantly, what are your emotions? Because you know, here's a dream that you've had since you were a kid, and you weren't able to play in the game because of the injury. So was it still as, you know, was it still like a jubilant feeling or was it just kind of a, you know, almost an unsatisfactory kind of feeling knowing that you won, but you weren't out there for the clincher? Yeah, there's a, I think there's a, again, a part missing. I know Billy Clement was, Billy Clement was really dinged up, banged up badly. And uh, he actually went to Clarkie before the game and said, I, I can't, I can't go tonight. I can't go. I'm my shoulders. And I said, I really, I can't go. And uh, Clarkie basically said that you have to go, you have to play. We need you for killing penalties, taking faceoffs. And so Billy dressed, but Billy was going to pull himself out of that game as well, too. Um, you know, it's a, it was a pretty good grind back in those days. And you got a way you're able to play really physical. Uh, not that the guys don't play physical today. There's great hits out there and that, but it was, we didn't have the kind of protection and there was just so many things that were different, but you know, the, the, uh, the emotion that that's there a little bit missing, but you know what, my name's on the cup. You know, I got to play in as many games as I could. I did play in the, you know, the Rangers and all the other series, which were, were good ones too. So, you know, that's why I said the second year was 
more satisfying because I got to sit in there and bleed with those guys and have aches and pains and listen to the adversity and everything else, you know, as we went through the, you know, the steps again. And by the third year playing, playing, uh, uh, going into the finals there and we lost out to Montreal, they swept us four straight, but we didn't have Ricky. We didn't have Bernie and uh, you know, that's a big piece, piece of our game there. So they swept us four, but they only beat us by one goal. Uh, I think two goals in one game. So they swept, but they got swept. So, you know, the air was out of the bag. Guys were banged up. That's three years going going the distance and pounding pounding your way all the way through, and it just picked up on its toll. That's when Keith started making some changes and moved some personnel out, brought some different personnel in, and you realize some of the guys got older and the injuries were a little more severe for some of the guys. I think um, you know Bernie Perron ends up winning the Con Smythe that year, and rightfully so. I mean, the guy was ridiculous. He had two shutouts in the playoffs. Obviously, one being in this clincher Rick McLeish though had 13 goals and if Bernie didn't play as good as he did probably would have won the cons mud himself he was the one that scored the goal in this game on a deflection from a shot from DuPont from the point how how big I feel like for whatever reason I feel like Rick McLeish doesn't get talked about enough because there was the star power of Clark and Perron and you know kind of you know, Dave Schultz was was the guy that fits the city the most, the rough and tough guy. How important was Rick McLeish to the success of this team? Uh, Ricky, Ricky was huge. Uh, the acquisition of Ricky was was, was great. Um, it gave us that that stronger center down down there. You know, he's good on the phase off. He deceptive. You didn't think he was skating all that fast, but he could fly out there. He had a tremendous wrist shot. I played against him in uh, Peterborough. Uh, when I played for the Oshawa Generals, we played against each other. And he was always the talk of the league, talk of the team uh, back in those days. But he also was up against Lafleur and a bunch of other guys, too. And he still stood out, you know, Steve Vickers, obviously. And, but they, um, you know, he brought a lot to the game. Never said a whole lot. We used to call him 10 to 12. He always skated with his head, head on the side, <laughs> shoulder. Called him 10 to 12 all the time. Come on, Hawk. But, you know, a great personality. Um, you know, good hockey, real good hockey player. I mean, Everybody they seem to bring in, you know, help strengthen our team. So after the game, I got to know, which party was bigger? Was it the party after the game? I'm assuming you guys went to Rexy's because I know that was kind of the spot. (laughs) Or was it just the whole day of the parade? Because I feel like it wasn't uh, with this team. It probably wasn't a dry parade. No. Well, a couple issues with that. Uh, we didn't go to Rexy's because we couldn't get in. They they actually had called us and said, look, at Rexy's is, is swarmed by people. They you, you can't even you. get down the Black Horse Pike. You can't get in. So there's no sense coming. But that was kind of on the agenda. So we went to another quieter bar that nobody knew that we used to hang out at. And just as a team, we all showed up there and had drinks and cocktails and that. Uh, as far as the parade goes, like I said, there hadn't been a parade in Philadelphia. Uh, over two million people. You're familiar with Philadelphia, obviously. Uh, the road system is not what it is today. Mm-hmm. And how too many people got into our city is beyond. They didn't really know what to expect. Um, and they, they, they had us in uh, in uh, with cars with moonroofs. So we ended up sitting up on top through the moonroof. And cars would get separated. There were streakers. There was people in between our cars. Bernie had to, Bernie had to get out of the car and go to the bathroom. Somebody's house going up Broad Street. So that screwed the parade all up. Half of it went one way. And uh, it was filled. We we did plenty of plenty of time for partying. And then uh, the the second parade, they put us on. Uh, if you look, the Eagles here, they get the nice buses on flat right. up top there. We had a flat. We had a flatbed they used for towing cars. That we were <laughs> sitting up on top of. But at least we were high up in there, and we went through. Took a different route 
uh, down Broad Street as opposed to going up Broad Street. But it was just wild. And like I said, nobody knew. But it was calm. There was no rioting. There was no turning nothing up. There was no looting. There was no, I mean, the city was just euphoric. I mean, right. it was just awesome. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it made people feel good to win. It made, you know, Philadelphia is not that bad a city. It made people feel good about themselves. And, and, you know, we're not, we're not a dirty dumpy city. You know, we got great people, great fans here. Got a lot of different uh, uh, neighborhoods there that you can get all kinds of different things in. It's just a great place to, to be part of. Yeah. I saw in, in reading this past week, I saw, I forget where I read it, but they said that this was the biggest, the two million people that went to this parade was a bigger was the biggest public celebration in Philadelphia uh, since Japan surrendered in 1945. So you guys, <laughs> so you guys beat the end of World War II as far as celebration in the city. That's how that's how big the Stanley Cup was. That's yeah. that's that's to, to to kind of tell people that's how big sports are to Philadelphia. That you know a World War ending wasn't as big a celebration as bringing home a Stanley cup, something the city has never had. Yeah. Well, I said it, it gave everybody an opportunity, no matter what neighborhood you're in to, to be part of something winning. And, you know, Philadelphia's got a lot of hot spots up in the, up in the Northeast and different places that, that you go into and all that stuff. And, you know, they all, all welcome with open arms and, and, uh, and it gave people, made people feel good and uh, made us feel great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So one final one here, and it's kind of, it, it, this one's right for you. Uh, I, the other day I'm watching a, a documentary on Grant Fuhr, you know, obviously great uh, goalie in his day. And after the Oilers won their second cup, he was he wasn't able to play in the first one because of an injury. He was there for the second one. And on the ice after the game, he's saying that this one was more sweet because he got to play in it. Is that kind of how you feel? Go, You know, that second year, you guys go back to back in 75 because you were able to play in that one, did it feel more special than the first one because you were there, or is there nothing like the first? Yeah, I, I'm sure Grant felt the same way that I did. You know, you can play all season and you just don't make you don't make the big one. Somebody has to step in there for you, and you, you do. You even though that you got the team there per se, and you contributed so much to the team, but you don't get you don't get that final ending. So it's always a missing void. And obviously, they came they bounced back pretty good. Was that in '87? Uh, I think it was, I think it was earlier than that. It might've been around 83 or 84. The one that, uh, their second one that they won. I know 87, they beat, they beat us again. So we we had a hard, we had a hard rough go of it in the eighties in the finals. They should have ran you guys back out there. (laughs) Well, we were actually in the building up there in 87. They actually flew, flew the alumni up there. Anybody wanted to go. So we were up there. We kind of stood out a little bit because we all had three piece suits on. Everybody else kind of was, you know, different clothing they were wearing. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you when you're part of a team and you've done so much, you you can go to sleep at night knowing that you contributed to the team. You you helped get them to where they got to, and you just couldn't close it out. Now you get a chance to close it out. It's pretty special. Right. Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for doing this. You know, like I said, the whole the whole goal of this you know, whole kind of thing that I'm doing is to educate fans and maybe hear stories that they didn't hear before. I mean, you're, you're a legend around here and all you guys are, you guys, I mean, is it true? Do you not have to buy uh, drinks anytime you go out anywhere in the city? Does that still hold up? Uh, every now and then I remember everybody's, everybody's kind of getting older and moving on, but uh, you know, it's not about buying the drink as a camaraderie guys are approachable. Um, it's one thing the flyers are trying to do, but with their with a 
players association, what they can do, can't do with what the team wants them to do. And obviously with the games, if you look at the schedule, the way the games are playing now, there's not much opportunity for the guys to get out in the community and do stuff. I mean, through virtual, we got a lot of guys doing stuff with CHOP, a lot of charities the guys are partaking in. Um, you know, the guys are great for, for giving a lot of time there. And it's just, they can't get out. So like a lot of people would walk right by them on the street and not know who they were. You right. know, now you got helmets on, you can't see anybody's face and, you know, you can see them in the interviews and all that stuff, but, you know, need to get their identity out there, but they're just so, so tight on time to, to rebuild your body. They're playing two games in three days, four days. Um, you know, you dinged up here a little bit there. Um, so they really need to get their rest and, and said, it's a different, it's just a different mindset, different way to play now. So, um, yeah, if somebody wants to buy us a beer, we're good. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I promise if I ever see you out in public, I'll I'll buy you and whoever you're with as many <laughs> as you want. Even though I wasn't even born yet in 74, you know, just for what you did for my dad and my mom, I, I believe I owe you at least one. <laughs> Mark, anytime. If I see you, I'll buy the first one. How's that, buddy? All right. Sounds good. All right, Bob, Bye. I appreciate it. Uh, can't thank you enough for doing this. Take care down the road. Yeah, good luck to you. I'll tell you what, if if Bob the Hound Kelly ever buys me a beer, we're ever able to share a beer together. Uh, that'll be one hell of a, of a story that I will tell every person I meet until the day I die. So I hope everybody listening right now enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. Just hearing the stories, you know, getting a feel for kind of what it was like in the locker room, going into that game, going into that series and just all the buildup because you know, you can't understate enough just how good the Boston Bruins were in the early 70s and that year. Just go back and look at the stats. Just look at what Bobby Orr did that year. Just look what Phil Esposito did that year. And it just puts it into perspective so much more what a tremendous accomplishment it was for the Flyers to beat that team and to do it by a score of one nothing. I mean, this is a team that literally could, the Bruins, that is, this is a team that can literally get out of bed and score a goal with one eye closed and, you know, one hand in their pocket just trying to wake up. That's how good this team was. That's how many goal scorers that Boston Bruins team had. So for the Flyers, and more importantly, more particularly, Bernie Perrant, for them to hold that team with that much firepower, with that many Hall of Famers, to no goals in a series clincher, in a Stanley Cup clincher, that is that that in and of itself, even if it wasn't for the Cup, even if it was just in a playoff game to, to, to close out a series, that in and of itself is an accomplishment. But to do it for the Stanley Cup on the biggest stage is incredible. And what I found so interesting when I went back and watched the game is I believe this was on like a Sunday afternoon, like afternoon, afternoon to the point where when you're watching the game, if you ever, if you ever go back and watch it, there's certain camera angles that you could see the light, the daylight from the outside shining through all that glass, you know, all those that was the outside of the spectrum. So just to put that in perspective in 2021, you know, the NHL doesn't have the big, you know, to do the big gravitas that maybe the NFL or the NBA does. But even so, they would never in a million years, even if the game happened to fall on a Saturday or Sunday, especially if it was on a Sunday, they would never in a million years put game six of the Stanley Cup finals 
in an afternoon time slot, which has never happened. No shot in hell that game starts any earlier than 8 o'clock Eastern time. So it's just weird to look back at, you know, at a time where sports really wasn't this superpower that it is right now, where right now sports literally could shut down the world. You know, if the game's big enough, it could break the internet. It could bring people to a standstill. That's how big the superpower of sports is, not just the NHL. So I found that interesting as hell. I hope everybody enjoyed this. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly did. Looking ahead next week, uh, Monday, we're going to be getting back into the Flyers, the current Flyers, the 2021 Flyers, uh, and everything that's going on with them. The good, the bad, the ugly, because there's a lot of all of that to go around right now with that team. And then next week, we'll be doing another. Next Thursday, we'll be doing another Getting Bullied Remembers the Spectrum. Uh, kind of going back and forth in my head right now between which game I want to do. I will obviously keep you posted on Twitter what will be coming down the pipeline. And speaking of Twitter, you could follow me, Mark Giannone, handsome guy. Ten cent face with million dollar hair. I'm at Mark Flagman with two N's. You can follow this show at underscore getting bullied. Surprise, surprise, I run both, so really you're following me twice. And you can follow the Hockey Podcast Network at HockeyPodNet. You can get this episode, you can get every episode of Getting Bullied, even the archives. And it's all through the Hockey Podcast Network. And let me just say this for all the people out there, wherever you're going to listen to this podcast, Please, please, please like, subscribe, and comment anywhere you're listening to it because that's what's going to help take this show to the next level. Coming up this week, I will be announcing on the this show's Twitter, at underscore getting bullied. And again, this is another reason why you want to make sure you're following the show because I'm going to be announcing our first ever giveaway. And it'll be your chance to win a 1997 Philadelphia Flyers Eastern Conference Finals pennant. That's right, a pennant, which I believe is somewhat of an outdated piece of memorabilia, but an awesome one. I think it's not appreciated enough these days. So look out for that on Twitter at underscore getting bullied for your chance to win a 1997 Eastern Conference Champions pennant, you can put it anywhere you want. You can put it in your room, your kid's room, your man cave, your she shed, your office, right above the mantle next to the wedding picture. Put it wherever the hell you want. I don't care. But just follow us on Twitter at underscore getting bullied to find out how you could win that lovely piece of historic memorabilia everybody i can't tell you how much fun i had doing this episode i hope everybody listens to this one the next one the one after listen to it a thousand times and don't forget to like subscribe and comment anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts it's that simple just do it it's easy it would help me out tremendously and i would appreciate it so until i talk to you next time which will be monday talking about the current team the 2020 one Philadelphia Flyers, that's a mouthful, but whatever. Till I speak to you then, everybody enjoy your life, and let's go Flyers.